I think if we're honest, sometimes that can, can hit home and, and, and be true. And as David read the text today, and as we see that, that video, um, how far removed the attitude of what we just saw is from the first century church, is it not? Um, it, it is. Um, very far removed. Uh, an attitude that we saw in the clip that what's in it for me kind of attitude. What can I get and what kind of benefits I can receive where it becomes about preferences. But you never see that in the New Testament church. The focus of Christianity in the Bible as we see, especially here in Acts, was centered around loving God. It was centered around loving others, not self-centeredness. It was about cost. It was about sacrifice. Yet often the church, even today, can be characterized by comfort, can be, comfort uh, can be characterized by ease. And if we're all honest, we sometimes can lean toward that, our comfort, our ease, our wants. And so today, what I would like to do is to look at these 24 verses in about three or four different sections. And, and the first thing I want us to see is the backdrop of this text is the persecuted church. And then we get a little glimpse of this, this one, this, this character called Simon, and, and, and we look at him and we look at his faith. What kind of faith did he really have? Did he have faith at all? And at the end of the day, how does that translate to you and I? Are, are we a committed and passionate follower of Christ like the apostles who were being persecuted? Or... Do we kind of line up with Simon, looking out for, for me and what I want? Tough word, but a needed word. And, and so what I'd like to do today, look at the first four verses. It kind of gives us the, the backdrop to what's happening here. Um, last week we saw Stephen, um, his life was taken by the hands of religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He was a faithful man. He was a man who lived by the power of God in, in faith uh, a man who was passionate and, and was stoned to death. And, and now, as a result, what we see in Jerusalem is, is now this per persecution is on the rise. That began with, with Stephen, um, it, a hearty uh, or, or an advancement of the persecution that began with Stephen. But look at this in verse 1. It says, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And so what do we see here? We see this one uh, Saul is, is ravaging the church along with others. He is stirring up others to persecute these Christians. Literally, this idea of ravaging is like he was a wild boar, is kind of the idea. Uh, he was a wild boar and literally taking men and women who were believers in Jesus Christ, dragging them through the city and putting them into prisons for proclaiming Jesus Christ. Now, as a result of this persecution, what happens? And there's a key phrase in verse 4. It literally says that they were scattered. They were scattered from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Just kind of give a little side note here. If you remember, um, 
a couple weeks ago, we talked about the two groups of, of Jews. They were the Greek Jews and the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrew Jews. And, and when they came to Christ, where before they worshiped in separate synagogues, when they come to Christ, they are together. And they had to work out their differences. And we saw that in Acts chapter 6 with the, the feeding and the serving of the widows. And something that we saw and we'll continue to see here is that it seems like the Greek Jews are the ones that are facing the persecution so heavily as they come to Christ. And it says here that they were scattered, except the apostles. The apostles were mainly Hebrew Jews. And so it seems like that they didn't maybe face it as strongly in this case yet. They will. Um, but whatever the case is, the apostles stay. They're the leaders of the church. They stay in Jerusalem. But what happens to the others is they are scattered abroad, literally to Judea and Samaria. Now, when you hear that idea, here's what I want you to think of. That God makes persecution serve his mission. Because you, as you hear the phrase, to Judea and Samaria, what comes to your mind? I hope Acts 1-8 does. We looked at this back in January. You remember this text? Jesus told his disciples this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem. They've been there. That's, that's where they're at. And now, he says, in all Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so we see the mission of God spreading to Judea and Samaria as a result of the persecution in Jerusalem. And not only that, and in Acts 11, listen to this verse in 19 through 20. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Back then, people would have said that Cyprus, Phoenicia, and Antioch were literally the remotest parts of the earth. And so what do we see happening here? We see the mission of God. We see Acts 1-8 happening. We see that persecution, God uses it to scatter and move his people to be on mission. People have seen that for, for centuries. In fact, we could look at stories for thousands of years of how this is true. In fact, in January of 1985, I want to take you back a little bit. There was a pastor by the name of Risto Kulichev. He was a congregational pastor in Bulgaria and I want you to hear his attitude because I believe that was the attitude of the apostles and, and the likes of Philip that we're going to hear about in just a moment. But with this pastor, he was arrested. He was put into prison back in 1985. And here was his crime. What had happened is the government had said that we're going to appoint a pastor. The state is going to appoint a pastor of the church. Wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that be something if that ever happened in our land, where the government came in and said, you know what, church, this is going to be your, your pastor. And so here was this pastor who was approved by the congregation. Instead of allowing this state-elected pastor to preach, he got up and he preached. As a result, he was placed on trial. The trial was a mockery of justice. They placed him in jail for eight months. But I want you to listen to the attitude of this pastor. He says, during his time in prison, he made Christ known every way he could. When he got out, he wrote this about his experience. He says, both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have ever expected within the church. 
God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. And we hear stories like that all throughout thousands of years of Christianity, from Fox's Book of Martyrs to Open Doors, you name it, we hear stories like that. The lesson comes true again and again is God uses persecution. He uses the suffering of his people to do what? To spread the truth of Christ and to bless the world. And so sometimes God uses persecution in his mission to also do something else, to awaken the church. Because what can the church get prone to? What do we see even Jesus addressing in, in the book of Revelation, chapters 3 and, and 4? He addresses the sluggishness, the laziness, the idleness of his people. Because what can happen often is we can become comfort uh, Filled with, with this comfortableness, we can get this ease mode, this, uh, we can be affluence and prosperity, safety. All these freedoms that we have can often result in laziness after God and after his mission. And so what God does a lot of times is he brings persecution, he brings hard times, even trials to produce prayer to produce more power as a result of a praying church, to produce a church of open hands and wallets of generosity. That's what God does with persecution often. And we see that with his church. In the first century, this church was on fire. They were filled with the power of God. Open hands, open wallets, praying. More power than maybe we've ever seen before. And so Jesus addressed both this idea of persecution and this idea of prosperity when it came to the ways of the world. And here's how he did it. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, I want us to look at this up on the screen. He's addressing the soul of man. He's addressing his people when it comes to their walk with Christ. And he says it in a parable with soils. Listen to what he says. He says in Mark 4, 16, he says, In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately they receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately what happens? They fall away. Now that can be a cost. That can be a result of persecution. People can hear the word, they can get excited, but then they see the threat and fear overtakes them and they turn away and they're like, listen, the cost is too great and they fall away. But listen to something that I believe is even more widespread in its devastating effect than persecution even. Jesus says, and others are the ones on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things enter in and they literally choke the word, the message of the kingdom, and it becomes unfruitful. They too fall away. And so here's the point. Persecution is costly. We see it. As Saul ravages the church in Jerusalem, it's costly, and it can have harmful effects, causing people to fall away from Christ. But getting sucked into the lie of wealth and the worries of this world 
the widespread effect of that is much more. I would say is much more devastating than persecution. We'll see in just a bit how true this is because it can cause us to, to literally fall away from truly turning to the reality of Christ and trusting him and following him. Now, as a result of this persecution, what happens? They're scattered, we see that, but where are they scattered to? Look at verse five. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria. He began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them. They were literally shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame, they were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. And so the Christians are scattered and we learn about this one in particular by the name of Philip. Where have we learned about Philip thus far? We've heard his name in one place. In Acts chapter 6, he was the second man mentioned in the list of seven who would go and they would serve the widows there in the church in Jerusalem. It was Stephen, it was Philip, and then five other guys. And so Philip was a man of faith. He was a man who was filled with the power of God. And he was chosen to serve, but much like Stephen, he was more than just one who, who served widows. I mean, that's huge, and that's, that's an awesome, awesome role. But he was also one who was a great witness for the kingdom of God, even outside his ministry within the body. He was filled with the power of God, and we see him scattered from Jerusalem to where? To the city of Samaria. And what's happening in Samaria is the power of God is working through Philip. People are being healed. Those who were lame, those who were paralyzed now can walk. And those who were oppressed or uh, possessed by the enemy now have been released from that and set free. And so what do we see here? The power of Jesus Christ has the power to deliver from Satan, from the power of all that is evil. Christ has the power to forgive sin and make us right with God, bringing what? Joy. The city rejoices, verse 8 says. Where does eternal joy come from? Everlasting joy. Psalm 16 says, from the hand of God, from the right hand of God. From Jesus Christ himself. The power of the kingdom of God brings joy because it changes lives. And that's what happens in Samaria. That's what happens through the ministry of Philip. Jesus said this when he was here on earth in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, verse 10. He says, blessed are those, literally happy are those, joyful are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. I would commend to you today this, that Philip, though persecuted in Jerusalem and scattered to Samaria, he was blessed. He was filled with joy. Now, how could one say that as their family is uprooted, taken out of their, their home, and scattered abroad? How could one say that because of what Jesus says here? Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For what? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven because this is not their home. They're citizens of heaven. And I will commend to you this, that Philip's attitude, his heart, his witness was contagious to a city. His joy was contagious. And it spread to a city who was changed. Samaria 
was changed. They were experiencing the power of God. But what Luke is going to do, Luke's the writer of Acts, he's going to tell us about this city, but within that, he is going to show us something else, specifically an occurrence of one to show us what, what true belief is and what it is not. And how we all, at the end of the day, must check our own hearts. And so look at this real quick, if you would, with me. Look at verse 9 as Luke continues here. He pulls out this episode of, of one. And here's what he says. Now there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city, astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Now, now stop for a second. The, the backdrop to this is the church has been persecuted. I don't think this is by accident that Luke is writing here in chapter 8. He's told us in eight verses about the persecution of the church. Now they've been scattered abroad. And now we're going to hear about this one who was a magician. And he was claiming to be great. In fact, look at verse 10. They all, from smallest to greatest in the city, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. They were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with magic arts. Many believe that this guy was, was literally empowered by demons or the enemy to do some of the things that he was doing. Acts 16 talks even a little bit about that, that, that we can even see power that people have, but it's demonic. And most likely that's the case with this man. But when they believed, and so there's a transition here, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, men and women alike. And so these in the city were once astonished by Simon and his magic. Now they turn to Christ. They believe and they're baptized. Just a side note again, when one believes in the New Testament, what do we see follow? Baptism. It's not a question. It's the mark of a believer. It's the mark of a believer. It's a mark of that step of obedience, of saying, hey, I'm, I'm now, I now am united with Jesus Christ. And so they do that. But then look at verse 13. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. As he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. And so here's Simon. He believes, it says. It says he's been baptized. It says now he's following Philip. But what does it say at the end of verse 13? He's amazed. He's amazed because what is he seeing? He, he's seeing greater acts and power than what he has done. And he's amazed at it. He's amazed. But look what happens in, in verse 14. As it continues, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. I'll explain that in just a second. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now something just to talk about real quick before we get to focus back on Simon and his belief. It, it says here that the apostles went down because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Those in Samaria had not. Even though they had believed, they had not received the Holy Spirit yet. So they went down to lay hands on them, to pray for them, that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So what do we see here, right here? It's almost like this, this kind of this two-step process 
um, with those who came to faith and then receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want us to get caught up in, in, in the means here. And I don't think that's the goal of Luke whatsoever. Because in the book of Acts, what do we see? And this is important to note. Luke will just do this. He'll describe the coming or the working of the Holy Spirit in a few different ways. And let me just kind of give you an idea of what I mean. He will say this uh, seven different ways. He says the Holy Spirit is given to people as a gift when he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When he's talking about the Holy Spirit, the person of God, he says that literally the Holy Spirit falls upon people. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit comes upon people. The Holy Spirit is poured out on people. Fifthly, people receive the Holy Spirit. People are baptized in the Holy Spirit, literally united to the Holy Spirit of God. And people are being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so Luke will talk about the person of God and the Holy Spirit coming to people, upon people, people receiving the Holy Spirit. But here's the point I want you to get. In every case of the coming of the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit being received in the book of Acts, here's what we see, and here's what I want you to focus on, is that there are definite effects, life-changing effects that one can point to as evidence that the Spirit has been received, without a doubt. And I think that's the point. So, so don't get caught up in, oh, the apostles had to come down, they had to come down and lay hands and pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. The point is, the Holy Spirit has a life-changing effect, has a life-changing effect to where it is evident that that person has received the Holy Spirit. And we've seen this throughout Acts even thus far. Remember the day of Pentecost, what happens? The gift of the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. They are speaking in different languages. People begin praising God. The apostles were given this empowerment to witness in the most amazing way as we see with Peter. Not only that, here in Samaria, we've already seen this morning as we've read, the moving of the Holy Spirit, power to change lives, miracles are occurring. And then later in the book of Acts, we will see um, people being converted continually. We'll see people empowered to be witnesses, just like Paul will be in Acts 9 and on. And then we see people being obedient to God. Obedience is a mark of the presence of God in one's life. And we see that throughout the book of of Acts. So what's the point? The point here is this, that Luke, uh, that Luke is making, is however we receive the Holy Spirit, like it is here in Acts chapter 8, whatever the case is, receiving the Holy Spirit is, is a real identifiable experience of the living God. Not just this logical um, experience, not just an act of the human will, but it is receiving of the Holy Spirit where one is truly affected and life change is evident. That's why Paul says this. I love this question. Listen to this. In Acts 19.2, listen to what Paul says. He says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they'll think about this. In, in the church today, in the American church, how do we talk about believing in the Holy Spirit? Let's, let's just... Pretend we're at Starbucks, we're just sitting having a coffee, and we're talking about this for a second. When we talk about belief in the Holy Spirit, what do, what do we usually say? We, we usually will say this, right? We'll say, hey, when one comes to know Christ as Lord and Savior, they receive the Holy Spirit. And so what's the question we usually ask? Have you believed in Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior? 
But isn't it interesting what Paul does here? Paul says, when you, when you believe, or excuse me, let me say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? He asks it a little differently. Someone could say, well, that's semantics, right? But what's, what's Paul's focus here? And the, and the focus we see in the New Testament church is this. The Holy Spirit changes lives. And those who have the Holy Spirit are those who have believed in Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in the New Testament. And that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 8. What's the emphasis? The emphasis is Jesus changes lives. The gospel changes lives. The Holy Spirit comes and changes lives, and it is evident. And it is evident. We've seen the evidence. We've seen it in Peter. We've seen it in Stephen last week. We see it in Philip this week. It is evident that lives are changed. So with that in mind, look at verse 18. And then we're back to Simon. Now when Simon saw the Holy Spirit has bestowed through the laying on of hands, he offered the apostles money. Probably not a good move, huh? What do you think? Nah, probably not a good move, okay? Saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish, a key word. In fact, if you write up your, your, your Bible, if you circle, square it in or whatever, a double underline, underline, that's probably a good place. It says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then he says, you have no part or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours. Pray the Lord that, if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bondage of iniquity. What's interesting is back in the first part of this chapter, what do we see? Simon believed. Simon was baptized. He joined Peter and observed the ministry of Peter. But it seems right here that his belief is false. It seems as though his belief is false. And that most likely he truly is not converted and a Christian. Now, you can read different thoughts on that. There's others that would say differently. But when you look at the text here, look at verse 20. It says, may your silver perish with you. That phrase, perish, is not the idea of simply dying. It's, it's to perish means to perish forever, to perish in eternity. And he says here, may your money, may your silver perish with you. And then not only that, look at verse 21. You have no part or portion in this matter, is what the apostles say to Simon, for your heart is not right before God. That means that, hey, you have no portion or part of the Christian life, of the kingdom of God, because your heart is not right with God. And then it says in verse 23 that he is in bondage to sin. He's enslaved to sin. He has not been set free from the power of sin in his life. And so what can we conclude from that? That the object of Simon's faith was what? It was the power of signs and wonders. He was fixed on the power and everything that pointed to Jesus, but never truly seems to turn to Jesus. And so how can we illustrate this? What's a good way to illustrate this? I'll just take um, 
one of my kids, I'll, I take Eliana, she's the youngest. She's, she's three now, but, but let's pretend Eliana, when, when she was one, her and I are hanging out, we're, we're on the couch, and, and, and just hanging out, and then, and then all of a sudden, there is a, a blue jay. There's, there's a lot of blue jays out these days, and so there's a blue jay in our backyard, and, and I'm like, whoa, look, a, a blue jay, and I tell Ellie, look, Eliana, it's, it's a blue jay, and, and she's one, and so I'm pointing, and I'm pointing, and, and I'm excited, a blue jay, woohoo, and so I'm showing her that, and then she, she's starting to point, and she's getting excited, but she never sees the blue jay, but she's excited. I mean, she's ecstatic, and she's doing what dad's doing. She's pointing outside. I mean, kids do that, right? They mimic, they get excited, but they may never see the reality of what we're pointing to, especially at one. And I think that's what happens here with Simon. He, he gets excited. He's amazed at the pointing. <laughs> He's amazed at the miracles and the signs, but he never sees the reality of Jesus Christ. His belief was in more, or excuse me, in mere amazement. And I think that's why Luke emphasizes that in verse 13. He was amazed. And that could happen. We can get so amazed at the phenomenon, the supernatural, but miss the reality of Jesus Christ and what he came to do and who he is and let him change our lives. You see, the signs and the miracles were there to point. They weren't the end. They were the means. But Simon got wrapped up in that. It's, it, we, that can happen today, right? And we can get caught up in signs and miracles and, and things like that. They have huge purposes to point to Jesus. We, we can do that with a sermon. How, how would that look? Maybe, you know, we go to lunch today out, out here and and we could talk about the sermon. We, we could be excited about the sermon, but, but it, it never leads to the reality of Jesus changing us. It can happen like with, with music. I mean, we, can, we can be jazzed about music. We can, be, we can all get up about music and excited about the worship. Oh, the worship was great or whatever, and we get all excited about it. But it never points to the reality of Jesus Christ in our life. It never leads to that. And so... Simon is caught up, but he's caught up. He's amazed at those things that pointed to Jesus, but he never saw something. And verse 23 gives us a clue. He never saw the ugliness of his own sin. He never saw the need to repent, as verse 22 tells us, and to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, to make him new and clean, to have a right heart with God, as the apostles note. He needed to repent, to have a change of heart, a change of mind, because we see here he most definitely did not have a change of mind. I mean, remember before he was caught up in being great. And no doubt from, from probably his magical works, he was making a profit. And so what do we see here? He, he sees what the apostles are doing, and what does he want to do? He wants to buy the gifts of God, the Holy Spirit, and the ability to do what they are doing. He wants to buy it to purchase it. And so his mind hadn't changed. He was still enslaved to sin, it tells us. What's interesting about this is we think about Philip, or excuse me, about Simon. In extra 
biblical accounts and historical accounts. This is not found in the Word of God, so, so don't hear me saying that, but in extra accounts, church historians, three in, in particular, Ignatius is one of them, they will tell us about Simon, that, that Simon showed his true colors. He, he was a heretic, that he truly would never convert to Jesus Christ. He never truly was a Christian. And so Paul calls that vain believing in 1 Corinthians 15. In, in fact, in James 2, James called it this. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He called it dead faith, right? Dead faith. But look at Simon. It, you know, there seems to be a glimmer of hope here, right? We don't know for sure, but it seems to lead to the fact that he was not. But look at verse 24. But Simon answered and said. So he's answering the apostles after they throw this down. He says, pray to the Lord for me yourself so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Think he's, he's scared? You think he's heard a little bit of Ananias and Sapphira going down? I mean, he might have, right? He might have. Acts 5, he might have. But what is he asking? He's asking for mercy. He's asking for mercy. And God truly grants mercy. But he bids us to come humbly and to do what? To repent, which Simon had not. So, so, so what's the conclusion? Here's the deal is, God's gifts are gifts, right? God's gifts are gifts. People cannot purchase them because God gives them freely and as he sovereignly pleases. Simon thought he could buy gifts. His flesh controlled him. He sought even his own glory over God's. We've seen that. That's his history and he missed it. He missed being caught up in the amazement of the signs and not in Jesus and turning to him. And, and can't that happen? Can't that happen? I mean, I, I think it causes us to look at our own motives. Why do we attend? Why, why do we come to a Sunday gathering? I, I, is it to produce a good feeling that, hey, I came? I came and I feel better about myself? I mean, sometimes we can go there, right? To our giving. I, I give, but what's the end to my giving? Is, is it out of just faithfulness to Christ that I want to be an obedient follower and I want to open my hands and be a generous giver to, to help and, and to help the needs, to, to, to help provide for the, the ministry of the church? I mean, is, is that the end or is it at the end of the day to say, hey, listen, man, I feel good about myself. I feel good about myself. Or, on the other hand, are, do we do these things? Do we serve? Do we do those things to, to maybe think, okay, well, God's going to bless me if I do this. Or, on the other hand, or God won't get mad at me. I'll appease him if I do these things. You see, that's all the Simon attitude. That's all the Simon attitude. It's the prosperity movement that many today are sitting in front of a TV and watching on a couch at home. And then they will not hear the truth. And people get sucked into it. And it's so far removed from the persecuted church of the first century. So far removed. And so in light of this, what does Jesus desire? He desires passionate, true, committed followers. Where it says in Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if you want to come after me, if you wish to come after me and follow me, what do you do? You must come after me, deny yourself Take up your cross daily and follow me. It's a life of sacrifice. It's not comfort. It's not ease. It's a life of cost. It's obedience. 
at work in our lives, subduing sin, inclining us instead to acts of love, just as we see with Philip, but we don't see it with Simon. Simon was fixed on self. It's praising God with our life, filling our hearts and our mouth with worship to Jesus and to the Father. It was filling Samaria as they were rejoicing at the power of God, but Simon was fixed on his own glory. It's courage at work in our life and overcoming fears. The Holy Spirit gives us a will to risk things for the cause of Christ like Christians here in Acts chapter 8 at the beginning. Simon, on the other hand, was fixed on what he could get, trying to buy the gifts of God to be used for his own gain. And so we too must guard ourselves. And we must ask ourselves, am I faithfully walking with God? Am I being a faithful disciple? That's truly been changed by the Holy Spirit. I want you to see this and then we'll close. You know what? No more excuses. I will willingly choose God's fame above my own. I will stop acting as if I'm the center of the world. I will look at my apathy straight in the face and demand that it leave. No more excuses. I will both admit my addictions and cry out to the healer. I will refuse to allow the enemy to continue stealing my joy. I will stop worrying about what everyone around me is thinking. No more excuses. I will turn my heart back again. I will listen hard to the whispers of his spirit and I will proclaim the wonders of his never-ending love. No more excuses. No games. No pretending. No hiding. No dead religion. No more excuses. Period. That's what God wants. And so the question is at the end of the day is, I think like Paul asked, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And we see what it looks like. We see with the likes of Philip. We see the likes of the apostles. We see the likes of Stephen last week. And maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what? I, 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 my life isn't changed. There, nothing, it hasn't changed. Um, and so today I would encourage you to say, hey, you know what? Take God at his word. Trust in him, but believe in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've seen the, the pointers. Maybe you've seen the pointers. You've, you've got the pointers, but maybe you've never taken to the reality of, of Jesus and that he has died for you and he wants to forgive you of your sins. And, and so today, maybe that's where you're at, where you need to say, you know what, Lord, I want to trust in you. I, I want to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior and that he died for me. And I want to receive the Holy Spirit, change my life, and then start walking with the Lord. Maybe you're here today, and, and maybe you just needed just to hear today that, hey, hey, God is at work, that God is moving in a powerful way. He's, he's, he's been doing it in the first century. He hasn't stopped. The same God in Acts 8 is still doing things today. He's still at work, and he still wants to use his people. He is still scattering his people. When you leave here today, God is scattering us. He is scattering us to go to our places of work, to our places of school, to our neighborhoods, to proclaim the kingdom of God so that his Holy Spirit would work in and through us. God's still doing that. God's still doing that. I pray he's, he's at work in your life through the Holy Spirit doing a mighty work. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. God, maybe we read this text today and we're like, 
All right, that's cool. That's cool. And maybe it has no effect. I, I pray, on the other hand, it, it would. I pray it would land. And Lord, like the video just said, that, that we have no more excuses. Um, so many times we're, we're like the, the, the me church, Lord. We're, we're like that. We, we can all, if we're all honest this morning, we'd raise our hands and say, yes, my name is Jerry. I am a me church person. And, and, and we struggle with that. Oh, we struggle with that. And, and so, Lord, I pray, I pray, change our hearts. Oh, Lord, make us a, a church that, that truly transformed by your spirit, that we're ever loving, ever forgiving. And God, that we're faithful to, to, to proclaim your gospel and to be your witnesses. And so, Lord, um, move in us like you did in Philip, like you did in the church in the first century. Father, as we now come to this time to, to, to take communion together, um, God, we want to be a like-minded people, a people united together in community, moving together in mission together. And so, Lord God, as we do, we want to remember today that Jesus came and he died for us. And so as we take the bread, as we take the cup this morning, we want to remember that and um, hold that dear today, the reality of Jesus. And so we remember that today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John's going to...